Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish and one thing that they rather regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor and writer Rufus Jones, who is probably best known for his roles in Home, which he also wrote, W1A, in which he plays David Wilkes, and as Dr. Fogarty in Julia Davis's TV series Hunderby. But since his highly successful Edinburgh appearance in 2005 as part of the comedy sketch group The Dutch Elm Conservatoire, Rufus has hardly been off our screens. He's been in My Family, Extras, Lead Balloon, The Green Green Grass, Love Soup, Doctors, Midsummer Murders, Peep Show, Comedy Lab, Pete vs. Life, Mongrels, Fresh Meat, It's Kevin with Kevin Eldon, The Wrong Mans, Edge of Heaven, the films Paddington and Stan and Ollie, Up the Women, The Casual Vacancy, Camping, Tracy Ullman's Show, Episodes, Eric and Ernie and Me, and Urban Myths. I've edited the list, by the way. He is the voice of the narrator in Little Princess, plays various characters in 101 Dalmatian Street and Thomas and Friends, and can be heard on quite a few video games so it's no wonder that I had to wait quite a while for Rufus to become available so that I could ask him what he'd like to put in a time capsule it was worth the wait, here's what he chose That year we've just had sort of with five year old twins was just a little much to Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You know, when they when they went back to school, we had a kind of that that weird kind of codependent thing where, you know, having prayed for the day to come, they left. And me and Philippa just stared at each other. What <laughs> now? You know, because we just got so used to, you know, firefighting every minute of the day. <laughs> no, sex didn't occur. No, are you kidding? Oh no, well, exhaust- let's lie down. Let's lie down. No. But no, no, no just no, no. lie down and sleep. Five-year-old twins, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I recall sex as something that happened in the late nineties. Uh, no, <laughs> I love watching your girls on Instagram and everything when you put them on little things. Oh, bless you! I mean, they're really, really entertaining. Oh, thanks. Yes. What I love about them is they're so different. The two of them. They are. I know one of them's me and one of them's my girlfriend, and. um I think we sort of, we put them as much as anything, we put them on Instagram to remind us Mm. of how lovely they potentially are. (laughs) (laughs) As we know, the reality gap between Instagram and life can be substantial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for doing this, Rufus. It's really sweet of you. It was a great pleasure. I'm so so glad we could finally do it. Yeah. You've been so diligent. I I really enjoy it, actually. That's the thing, you know. When I started, I thought to myself, well, I wonder if I can maintain this. Or, in fact, I wonder if I can do it. Yeah. There's something to, well, to listening to people mm. that I was not sure that I had. 
<laughs> well, you're an actor. Exactly. <laughs> Used to the sound of your own voice. <laughs> I spent my entire life waiting for people to shut up, or in fact, yeah. cutting them off before they did, in order to tell yeah. my anecdote. Yes. Yeah. So it's been a real learning curve. You know? I mean, fortunately, the very first person I did was Stephen Fry, and that's a very good schooling, because yeah. instantly you go, okay, talk. And an hour later, you say, thanks very much. Yeah, and you <laughs> yeah, just yeah. occasionally say, no, I don't know that poet. It's a tired old thing to say, but he is so epigrammatic just in his everyday speech. It's terrifying. I, I remember going to a, an old Cambridge Footlights kind of dinner mm. in the turn of the century, and, and, and I joined conversation. Me and David Mitchell sort of went up just as Stephen, he'd been to the Oval that day, and it was, uh, it was 2005 when we regained the ashes. Oh, God. And we arrived, and just as he said... The thing is about cricket, people think it's herbivore, but when you're up close, it's carnivore. <laughs> wow. I thought, oh my God, yes, you've encapsulated an incredibly complex game in that one sentence. Yeah. Terrifying. Terrifying. Anyway, let's get on with it. Let's do it. Come on. Rufus, let's find out what your five things are for your time capsule. So my first item well, is technically two people, but mm-hmm. I think it qualifies as one. <laughs> um, and it's Laurel and Hardy. Uh, so I got into Laurel and Hardy. It was a strange time in my life. I was I was quite young. I was about, I think I was about 10 or 11 years old. Like a lot of kids my age, I discovered Laurel and Hardy on Saturday mornings because um, BBC Two would uh, kind of put them on after going live had finished on BBC One. You'd, you'd flick over to BBC Two as a kid, sort of thirsty for sort of more morning entertainment while, you're, while your parents snoozed. And they would run old sort of 1920s, 1930s two-reelers because it was cheap television, I imagine. Mm. And you'd have Harold Lloyd. You might have a bit of Chaplin. But Laurel and Hardy were the ones who were always on. And I don't think I'm alone in that I, you know, tripped across them on TV. And within about a week, as I recall, not only fell in love with them, but became absolutely obsessed with them. (laughs) And my dad, bless him, sort of noticed that I was really enjoying them. And he sort of encouraged me and he bought me a couple of books. Mm. I think within six months I had, and I still have, every book that was ever written about Laurel and Hardy. They're they're probably about 10 or 15 books, Mm. some of which are are just sort of basic biographies. Others are are breakdowns of all their two-reelers and feature films. And I knew everything there was to know about Stan Laurel <laughs> and Oliver Hardy. And I look back now and it was, and it was, I think it came at a time where I was a little lonely at school. I wasn't unpopular, but I had a bit of, there was some minor bullying at a minor public school. Mm-hmm. They often go together. <laughs> but um, I think looking back, I slightly kind of took cover in the past and in these two clowns films. Mm. And my dad would take me along to these um, conventions of Laurel and Hardy fan clubs. Uh, they're called the Sons of the Desert. Oh, brilliant. Huge international. And and I would be, you know, I'd be the youngest there by about 50 years. It was, <laughs> it was mental. But, you know, he'd buy me an original poster or something from the 40s and I'd have it on my wall. And one one Christmas, I just got total Laurel and Hardy stuff. It was, it was a complete, I, I was drunk on Laurel and Hardy. They made me sort of howl. They made me laugh in a in a way I could never get over because they were, you know, they were 80 years old. They made me laugh in a real belly laugh, contemporary way. Yeah. Which I, I never got over. And I think even now when I look at when I look at Chaplin or I look at Keaton and Harold Lloyd, I laugh at them from a point of being deeply impressed and reverent. But Laurel and Hardy gave me a sort of belly laugh, which <laughs> continues to this day. And plus there's a there's a connection between them that's deeply kind of soulful and contemporary and natural, oddly, and doesn't really tip over into sentimentality, which yeah. Chaplin did. I suppose they're lucky, aren't they, that they moved into the talkie era. They did. They work terribly well as talkies because they do beautiful verbal jokes. Well, that's right. And also, you know, to, to their relief, I think they found that their voices kind of stands weird Lancastrian mid-Atlantic twang weirdly fitted the character and Ollie's kind of southern genteel sort of uh, politesse you know sort of worked for that that bunch's character whereas you look at people like Harold Lloyd or or Chaplin to some extent you know when they made the move into talkies it was more problematic because they just didn't talk like they looked no so uh, yeah they still hold a kind of place a deep 
place in my heart. And um, I've forgotten virtually everything <laughs> I once knew about them. <laughs> well, I'm going to do one of their jokes then and see if you remember it, because I love it as a joke when they're sitting in a tree sawing the branch. And the line is, well, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. It's that's brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, they, they, they invented a lot as well, a lot of visual techniques. Um, there'd always be a scene where where Ollie, you know, trips on a roller skate or something at the top of a flight of stairs and careers down. Mm. And in the old day, before Laurel and Hardy, you'd show the pratfall, you'd show the fat guy bouncing down the stairs. Whereas what Laurel introduced was the camera holding on Stan's face, <laughs> watching him do it, which was always... <laughs> Oddly more entertaining yes. and more painful, you know, to kind of watch <laughs> the reaction of the other thing. And so I, I sort of, I think I discovered girls, basically, and beer. And by the age of 15, 16, you know, I'd moved on and consigned Laurel and Hardy to, uh, you know, my own time capsule, I think. Mm. But then I, I ended up uh, getting a part in the film Stan and Ollie. Now, did Steve Coogan know that you'd been a fan of Laurel and Hardy? No, the director, when I first met the director, John Baird, I said very early on, because I had to get it out, I had to say, listen, you do not understand how weird this is for me. Because <laughs> I know more about these two than you guys will ever know. And it's slightly freaky because being in this film is is sort of like, you know, being transported back to my own childhood. Mm. And Steve and John did such a sort of supernatural job of of recreating some of their some of their acts and 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 their their general demeanour mm. that it was you know I mean it's always a slight sort of pinch me moment working you know especially with someone like John C Riley but when they're sort of channeling your childhood heroes I had to really really keep my shit together <laughs> I wouldn't remember my next line no. um, and yeah Steve and John are very sweet they gave me a book give me a book at the end because uh, Steve definitely knew how obsessed I was. And he gave me a lovely book about Laurel and Hardy and he inscribed, dear Rufus, if you ever get through reading all of this, there is a massive chasm in your life. <laughs> Love, Steve. <laughs> and tell me you've read it. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. No, it, it stays gathering dust on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I spoke to Ross Noble recently and one of the things he chose to put into his time capsule was his signed photograph of Laurel and Hardy. No, really? Because he's a big fan of them, but actually because it used to belong to Robin Williams. <gasps> oh, my God. I know. Wow. That's a 100 years of Hollywood. Isn't it just? To, to Gateshead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> That's a, yeah, it's interesting with, um, with Laurel especially, uh, there are quite a few signatures and signed stuff with Stan Laurel because when Oliver Hardy died, Laurel never made any film again. He spent the rest of his years writing sketches for them mm. because he just, he knew that if he stopped, I think he would stop, you know. So he kept on creating, even though it would never be made. And he would respond to fans' letters. He was famously in the phone book. In, um, I think he lived in Florida. and he's in, so in a small apartment, I think, in Florida. A tight, very modest apartment because they never got residuals. They never no. they never earned anything off telly. So mm. they both had quite a few wives. And so <laughs> sort of by that stage, things were sort of surprisingly modest. And, and so Laura, there, there are thousands of letters which uh, are not only, you know, signed, but sort of really gorgeously and thoughtfully typed and written, you know, to 10-year-old kids or... Young guys like Robin Williams. Isn't it amazing? Because you think of the waste of that talent if all he's doing is writing those sketches and putting them in a drawer, when in fact he could have been writing brilliant film scripts, I think. He probably could have. He had, he, he had seven or eight years, and I think if he'd wanted to, the kind of 60s could have reclaimed him almost, mm. you know, and someone could have done something extraordinary with him. I just don't think he wanted to. I think there was something very genuinely modest about Stan Laurel. and. It goes back that there's a there's a great oh God here I go there's a great fact that before he went to Hollywood he was in a troupe Victorian troupe called uh, Fred Carnot's Circus which was the big music hall troupe and he understudied the star of that troupe who was Charlie Chaplin oh my word and there's old photographs of Stan Laurel dressed as Charlie Chaplin <laughs> and when Chaplin went to America they both went but Chaplin got signed up by Max Sennett, I think. And Chaplin did the very actively thing. He turned around to Laurel and said, don't worry, I'll get you over here. I'll call you. <laughs> and he never did. Oh. And um, 
And, 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 you know, Laurel became arguably as famous as Chaplin. For well, in fact, maybe now more famous. I'd agree, yeah. But he never forgot how there was this other guy who was his kind of master, who never quite gave him the leg up. And oh. makes you realise there's always a glass ceiling, no matter who you are. There's yeah. always the, the next guy who's getting your roles or yeah. is more popular. <laughs> I quite like those blokes. Yeah. I bump into them all the time and go, oh, hello. Yeah. The strange thing is they always treat you as if you are an equal. And you go, no, no, I'm, I know I'm second fiddle to you. I literally pick up your scraps. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I'm quite happy to. Exactly. Well, I think... I remember in my 20s, yeah, you get very competitive and sort of resentful of those people. And then and then you realise, no, no, they're uh, they're showing me the way. They're giving me a career. Yeah, and also <laughs> they feel exactly the same about somebody else beyond them. It's always the truth. Yeah. Okay, lovely. We'll put Laurel and Hardy into the time capsule for you. And all their back catalogue as well. <laughs> oh, God. This had better be a big capsule. Big as you like. <laughs> okay. Right, that's item number one. So what's your second item, Rufus? From the sublime to the ridiculous. My second item is a thing that you probably haven't heard of unless you're Canadian or know anyone Canadian, but it's a thing called craft dinner. No, I don't know it. K R A F T. Right. Dinner. Craft dinner. If you are in Canada is basically your ambrosia and nectar. (laughs) And it only really exists within the dominion of Canada. It's macaroni cheese, but of a type, that is, if you're not Canadian, uniquely disgusting. <laughs> but if you are Canadian, uniquely beautiful. My mom is from Toronto. And so from the age of one, I've been, I've been going back and forth to, to Canada. Right. And, uh, and some of my sort of formative sort of life experiences have been spent in Toronto or Ontario. And when I go over there, uh, particularly when I was very young, my grandma, who lived in Toronto, literally every meal would give me this stuff craft dinner <laughs> and it comes it comes in a box uh, a very sort of modest rectangular box and you open it and there's dried macaroni in there uh, there is then a sachet of orange powder which is a n- not not a sort of modest orange but a nuclear colored orange <laughs> which is well it purports to be cheese but it's really, it's not cheese. It's, it's E numbers and God knows what. Yeah, it's, it's pure chemicals. And uh, you boil up your macaroni. You get rid of the water. You pour the sachet in. You then add basically half a pat of butter and a bit of milk. <laughs> you stir it up. And what is left in the saucepan is basically one in three, I'd say, Canadian children's childhood. That is what you eat as a, as a Canadian child. That's going to fight off the cold, isn't it? It's going to fight off the cold. It's going to fight off everything. Uh, it'll probably balloon you to about 25 stone if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't kick your habit by the time you're 25. I very quickly sort of realised I had a, a craft dinner obsession. And I have to say, even to this day, on my birthday, my mum, from somewhere, I don't know where, will send me four packs of craft dinner. Oh. And I will... To my girlfriend's horror, I will surreptitiously hide it in the larder. <laughs> and, and of an afternoon where she's out and the kids are out, I will make myself up a tub of craft dinner. Mm. And uh, it's my sort of, um, I don't know, it's my Proustian Madeleine, basically. It's, my, it's the food <laughs> that takes me back to my childhood quicker than anything. <laughs> How weird that that's just one country. Yeah. Because is that the same company, Kraft, K-R-A-F-T? Yeah. That, that makes yeah. Kraft cheese and all sorts of things. Why is it not spread? I'm oh, sorry, cheese and spread. That's not good. <laughs> God, lifetime in comedy. Um, <laughs> in, in America, you can get Kraft dinner, but it's not the same. And no one eats it. But the craft dinner in Canada is uniquely, well, I would say good. Others would say bad. <laughs> and over here, you can get craft macaroni cheese, and that's rubbish too. And craft dinner in Canadian culture is like a, a byword for, yes, I'm Canadian. So big Canadian bands like the Bare Naked Ladies, for instance, which mm. are a kind of big band, they reference craft dinner all the time. Mike Myers in, in, his, in Wayne's World refers to craft dinner. And it's always a kind of little backhanded reference for the Canadian audience to kind of go, don't worry, I've got you. (laughs) I haven't forgotten my roots. I'm not pretending to be American. (laughs) Yeah. I spent a lot of my childhood, like between the ages of like, well, one and 15, we do 
occasional sort of big two-month holidays to, to Toronto and Ontario. And it was the most exotic place I could possibly imagine. Mm. And it, it's odd because Canada has a reputation, particularly back in the day, had a reputation for being boring. Peter Ustinov said, Toronto is New York made by the Swiss. Which <laughs> <I love> <laughs> and he was right. And I was in that Toronto, you know, New York made by the Swiss. But I loved it because the shopping centres were just like spaceships, you know, mm-hmm. the, the like of which, you know, we had nothing to compare it to in the UK. And and I'd go over there and I'd go to the cinema. And, it, and back then, all the films in North America were out, you know, a year, two years before they were in the UK. Yeah. And I'd spend my, my life in the cinema, just walking around shopping centres, eating craft dinner and uh, and supporting the Toronto Blue Jays, which was the baseball side, which was a, quite a new baseball side in the American sort of leagues. And they won the World Series in the early 90s when wow. I was uh, 15 years old. And I went to see them in the old, the old Sky Dome, which had a retractable roof, which again was just impossibly space age. So do you think that that gave you a sense of, of otherworldliness, that actually when you say, you know, you're sitting there and feeling slightly out of it at school, not really feeling part of it. And Laurel and Hardy is the thing that you can satiate yourself with. But um, do you think that sort of is part of that whole thing of that you were different? You had all these things that you couldn't talk to English boys about. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I definitely sort of, I was obsessed with films. I think, I think sort of the, the, the common thread is sort of films and TV. I just, mm. I just guzzled it up. And when you're young, you know, I had I had the kind of, you know, the, the nativity plays and stuff like that. But it's only when you're 14 or 15 and you start doing sort of grown-up plays or grown-up sketches at school. I think that's where you find your voice. And for me, when I when I was able to kind of ape my heroes like on stage, that's where I sort of came alive and sort of discovered my clique. And I went to a I went to a school in West London called Latimer. Mm which now is a very, very sort of swanky uh, public school. Yeah. But back when I was there, it was a sort of down at heel ex-grammar school. Um, I was there on a, on a scholarship and it wasn't doing a lot of drama. It had this quite sort of, uh, this quite kind of pre- prestigious network where Alan Rickman had gone there and, mm. and Hugh Grant and Mel Smith. Mm. But, but that was all back in the 70s and nothing was really going on. And me and some friends started putting on our own plays there. And we got and this, we got the school to 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 fund them. Great. And we direct them, and we did like the philanthropist by Christopher Hampton, and and they had a um they had an annual uh, kind of sketch night which I wrote for as well, and that was kind of the making of me, I think. Um, and and I, you know it's not uncommon I think for actors to say, but I certainly theatre and sort of doing plays was where I sort of found my my tribe. Mm-hmm. At a school that was only you know five or six of us. But by the time I, w- I ended up at Cambridge... And- Did that make you want to go to Cambridge? Did you then go to Cambridge with the knowledge that this is a great place to go if you like this sort of stuff? Yeah, it did. I mean, look, it's um, unfortunately, my, my adolescence is a tale of, of spectacular privilege, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> my dad went to Cambridge. He was a working-class kid who got a, uh, a scholarship there because his my grandfather, his father, was drinking buddies with the chancellor of one of the colleges mm. and got him in. And dad was there at Cambridge with Peter Cook and John Cleese and, uh, you know, uh, all, all that bunch and worked with them for, for years and years and years. And so when I was growing up... In what up, way? Sorry, Rufus, what did he do with them? Oh, well, he was, uh, he was in Footlights with them. He had a, he had a very cool life. Uh, he's still with us, but um, he did Footlights. He then bounced around with Cleese and Peter Cook, but he was very aware that they were brilliant sort of vocally that like their facility with language mm. was amazing and he couldn't compete with that but he was a very good physical comedian and back in the early 60s there wasn't much i don't know there wasn't much call for that <laughs> and he one day in the early 60s he realized that marcel marceau was in town he was at the old vic and dad was like 19 and he went and saw this guy in white face you know doing the doing the mime thing and dad was just blown away. And he thought in that moment, my God, that's what I have to do. And he went backstage 
with the sort of arrogance of youth and said to the stage manager, I must see Mr. Marceau. And Marceau basically ushered him in and dad had, you know, really basic French. Marceau's taking off his white makeup and stuff. Wow. Dad said in his basic pigeon French, where can I learn what you do? And Marceau uh, got out a bit of paper and he wrote down this address in Paris. And he said, uh, go there, go there. Oh, <laughs> and so dad God. packed a bag and he did. <laughs> and he spent and he spent three years in Paris during the student riots, learning from this guy called Etienne de Croux, who uh, taught Marcel Marceau, taught uh, all these kind of, you know, legends of 20th century sort of French theatre. Was it Jacques Tati? They were contemporaries. Mm. He taught a guy called Lecoq, Jacques Lecoq. Yeah. Who became the sort of go-to guy in the 80s. Mm. But Dad kind of went to the source, who was this guy, this eccentric old Frenchman, and um, sort of found his calling and came back and set up a school of, like, mime and physical theatre. Wow. And, and throughout all that was also, you know, just turning up and doing short films of Cleese and <laughs> and Peter Cook would call up every now and again and they they do bits of it. So he lived a sort of uh, he's got he's got quite quite severe Parkinson's now. So I sort of feel like I'm slightly kind of guarding the lamp of his history, you know, because it's slightly falling away from him. But he did have the most extraordinary life. He when he was in Paris, it was dur during the student riots and he met my mum who was Canadian who'd run away from home to Paris. <laughs> and uh, they weren't political at all, mum and dad, but they were in love. So dad said, yeah, what, what we used to do when we were courting was get a bottle of red wine and some cheese and a baguette. And we'd sit down on a park bench and we'd watch the riots. <laughs> <laughs> And they just watched kind of Molotov cocktails being thrown against the police. Oh. And he just said to us, we were so in love. It was just like fireworks. Wow. And, uh, and it was not uncommon that you were either on the barricades doing the full Les Miserables, <laughs> yeah. or you were just, you know, the, the even more French thing to do was to watch it <laughs> and just go, ooh la la. <laughs> Sit back and have a jetan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, your dad makes me feel so boring. Oh no, believe me, me too. Yeah. And it's, it's odd because he's a very, you know, mum and dad are very, in many ways, very conservative people, but they lived you know, as we all end up to some extent, but he lived and they both lived this impossibly romantic life mm. that uh, I think sort of, yeah, forged a lot in me and, you know, a love of, you know, theatre and stuff. And, well, and also that determination suddenly at school, there is no drama, let's start our own drama. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, it's believe me, it's not really in my nature. I think kind of once a decade, I start something. <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of, whether it's a script or a, you know, normally, like most actors, I wait for the phone to ring. I do look back at my parents and they had a real, mum calls it a pioneer spirit, you know, that Canadian spirit of just do it, you know. And uh, I do kind of call on that, you know, every now and again, especially in the last year of lockdown. We're all faced with, right, well, you know, what are we going to do? Set mm. up a podcast, write a script, you know, but it's got to be Indeed, something. yes. I wish occasionally I'd had a craft dinner to indulge myself with. I'm, <laughs> I'm very tempted to go online and see if it's possible to get them brought from Canada to try one. I think you probably can now in this in this age, but they were definitely, as when I was growing up, they were definitely contraband. Well, I'm not surprised. I should imagine that cheese is it's bloody dangerous. <laughs> oh, God, you probably, well, I was going to say you probably, you know, the EU wouldn't allow it, but thankfully Britain can now indulge. Now we can poison ourselves. <laughs> yeah. That's freedom for you. In the Canadian poison. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, then, craft dinners. They go into the time capsule. It's your second item. Wonderful. <laughs> right, I'm keen to find out what number three is. Okay, this is the point in the podcast where we pause for a moment to allow the podcaster to play you some ads. Hopefully, see you in a moment. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Let's hasten back to lovely Rufus Jones for more of the things he'd like to preserve in a time capsule. Oh, and the one thing he'd like to bury deep in the ground and expunge. It's a nice word. I might say it again. Expunge from his past. Well, number three. Number three is a professional choice. And it's it's my most recent one as well. And it's, um, you know, we do need a big time capsule, as I said. Uh, it's Stonehenge. Oh, and it, it comes from a very sort of roundabout, circuitous kind of route. But I did a show on Channel Four recently called Home, which I wrote and and acted in, and it became, you know, kind of my my career for four or five years because I was writing and then acting in it. These things take time, mm. and there is a scene at the end of the first series where I take uh, basically the show is about a, a Syrian refugee who stows away in the back of my my car. Mm. And I'm a sort of a little Englander, a bit of a xenophobe, and against my wishes. But uh, my wife asks the, the Syrian to stay. And he does for two series. And in the fi- final episode of series one, he becomes obsessed with Stonehenge. He doesn't understand what Stonehenge is. And so we take him there. And we have this, uh, uh, actually him and Rebecca Staten have this scene at Stonehenge where they both gaze at it and he asks, what is it? And she says, no one knows, really. Hmm. And he says, what's it for? And she says, no one knows, really. And he <laughs> says, who built it? And she says, no one knows, really. <laughs> and it seemed to kind of, it seemed to be a very fitting sort of, I don't know, emblem of, of Britishness, which is both very impressive, but shrouded in mystery. And we all sort of shrug and just go, well, that's just how it is. you know? <laughs> yeah. And we shot at Stonehenge on the very final day of our schedule oh. so it had been a it had been a six-week shoot for everyone uh, but for me it, it had felt like a a three-year project because i'd done a pilot i'd rewritten that a million times i'd, mm. I'd got a series i'd spent six months working on those scripts and then i was in it and i was carrying although i was very happy with how it uh, was going i was carrying a lot of tension and a lot of you know pent-up anxiety about whether it would be any good or whatever and meanwhile my star of the show an actor called Yusuf Kukur mm-hmm. was playing Sammy Yusuf is half Moroccan half English he, he's had a, a great career um he's been at the RSC he's uh, he's normally played kind of heavies because he's, he's, he's six foot seven mm. and he's got a big beard so you yeah know, he's a big man isn't he He's a big, he's a big unit, and by his own admission, a lot of his career has been spent playing terrorists. And <laughs> Give me a backpack, I'm off. Yeah, exactly. He said, you know, the, the most interesting a part he got from on TV was a terrorist who wore an eye patch, for instance. <laughs> you know, he, he said that was character development. You know, for, and suddenly he was cast in this thing uh, in our show, and he was he was majestic. He was he was great. We found our man. I was. I put all my trust and faith in him implicitly to, you know, tell me when the script wasn't appropriate or, you know, and, but he, he just got my writing sort of brilliantly. And, and he was putting himself under a lot of pressure during this project as well. Cause he, it's not often an Arabic character is center stage you know, mm-hmm. and he's not Syrian. So he learned the accent. And, uh, anyway, we, we, we got to this final day at Stonehenge and we were in the car park. We shot the scenes, and as you know, often the final scenes of a show that you shoot, because you shoot out of order, you don't shoot chronologically, 
the scenes are kind of quite anticlimactic. You know? mm-hmm. But actually, this one was quite, you know, we're at Stonehenge. Hmm. It felt quite, you know, monolithic. <laughs> and um, <laughs> our first first assistant director, you know, did the final take. And everyone, that's a wrap, series wrap. And and we all, we all start, you know, whooping and clapping and doing the received pronunciation of what you're supposed to do at the end of a shoot, which is, mm-hmm. you know, just give everyone a hug. And we all, we all give each other a hug. And then me and Yusuf sort of turned to each other. And for the only time in my career, we just burst into tears uh-huh. and just kind of collapsed in each other's arms. And it sounds very lovey. And to be honest, it was very lovey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but what it represented for me was just the, I don't know, the, the releasing of tension for the first time, creative tension for the first time in four years. For him, the end of a long journey of playing very similar parts and suddenly having an opportunity to to do something more substantial. Mm-hmm. And he got he got nominated for a BAFTA and he won an RTS for it. And so it, it, his life, I think, changed, his career changed somewhat sort of during it. And I think we just both knew in that moment that we're both kind of to an extent journeyman actors who've, you know, done a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been lucky to be in some good stuff, but I've, I've you know, paid my dues in one scene parts. And, and here was an opportunity and we both, grabbed it mm. and Stonehenge was the sort of backdrop to this, <laughs> to this yeah. moment of oh thank god and that moment of complete delight where you've made something that was pretty much how you wanted it to be and that's as as you know is a quite a rare feeling I think in what we do mm. um, and you never know if those moments are going to come again exactly and I was you know I was in my early 40s when I did that so you know, I was just cynical enough to know that enjoy it and remember this because the roads to success are littered with anticlimaxes and mm-hmm. untransmitted pilots and stuff you thought was going to be the big break and never was. And here was something that just felt completely what we wanted to be in, basically. Mm. And there was Stonehenge in the background. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the weird thing was we... We filmed the actual shot. <laughs> we were in the car park of Stonehenge, and Stonehenge was, you know, 200 metres away. We actually shot about half a mile away from Stonehenge <laughs> because it's it's so expensive to actually uh, set up a camera there because English Heritage make you pay tens of thousands of pounds to get anywhere near it. <laughs> what you do is you go to a field. There's one field half a mile away <laughs> where you can place an actor and have Stonehenge just on his shoulder and you use a very clever lens. And then in post-production, you blow up Stonehenge <laughs> so, that it, so that it's basically kind of um, the reverse of Spinal Tap. You make Stonehenge <laughs> look very big as yes. opposed to six inches tall, which is what it was. <laughs> so it kind of had that sort of spinal tapish kind of weird bathos, but had that spinal tap sort of final act actually, where we're all, you know, kind of going, Oh, this is, this is great. Oh, wonderful. I think I must be one of the last actors to be given any privileges at Stonehenge. I actually filmed something. I think it may have been for English heritage. That's probably why we did it, but I was filming at Stonehenge and they allowed me to stand on the stone (gasps) in the middle as the sun set between my legs while I was talking to camera as the sun went down behind me, saying, tonight is the shortest night of the year, I said, and tomorrow will be the summer solstice. And it was true. It was that night. Well, famously, the Druids used to uh, tell what time of year it was by how the sun sets between Michael Fent and Stephen's legs. That's what I read, yeah. Yeah. It is still a magical place. And um, again, very British in that, you know, there's a massive motorway about 50 yards away from it. (laughs) And most people's Stonehenge experience is just, you know, arguing with the kids in the back seat as it flies past <laughs> out the window. <laughs> I recently walked on the hills where the rocks come from. In Wales. In Wales, in Pembrokeshire. Funnily enough, I was just in Pembrokeshire. It's beautiful there. I've, I've never been to Wales. Uh, only Cardiff to work, but my God, hmm. I want to go there again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting into my sort of British countryside now. I'm, I'm such a city boy. My holidays were always kind of international. Mm. My parents would sort of take us backpacking to Greece and stuff. Mm. It was never posh. Well, with your parents, adventurous. Yeah, they were. Yeah, 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 it was crazy. 
we'd sleep on top of roofs in Greece in the mm. 70s and stuff. And it was it was cool. Oh, I might have been in the room next door. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> in the mid-70s, I went with a friend of mine and we went backpacking around the islands. <laughs> we chose islands that we thought had funny names. <laughs> <laughs> so we spent quite a lot of time on an island called Sifnos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. we did a lot of sleeping in people's potting sheds. Yeah, I, I went to Greece about so 15 years ago as an adult, and uh, I do that. I did that thing where I, I, I'd, I'd broken up with someone. I was feeling extremely sorry with myself for myself, and I, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll just take myself off on holiday. And I got to Piraeus in Athens, and I jumped on a ship, mm. and I, uh, and I fell asleep, and I just got off on the first island. We reached brilliant and found an old, you know, one of those old kind of Greek widows dressed in black who got me a room for like 10 quid a night or something. Yeah. And I thought, God, yeah, this is this is what we used to do as, as, mm-hmm. as a family. I remember seeing a sign on the grass in Perez where you wait for the boat, and there was a big sign that said, Please do not sleep under the grass. <laughs> <laughs> so we all thought, well, we'd fly on top of it then. <laughs> I'd spent the night before in, in a brothel, and that sounds bad, but I was only 17, and I had no idea it was a brothel, but it was somewhere where wow. they gave me a room. That's what you told the police anyway, Mike. <laughs> I've heard about your rider. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to put the huge monument that is Stonehenge wow. into the time capsule. So let's move on to item number four. Okay, item number four. I'm going to do a last-minute switch, actually. Mm. Um, and I'm going <laughs> to, I may, I may ask myself why after this, but, uh, I'm putting in the pop combo duo, right? Said Fred, right. <laughs> and that's exactly the pause I wanted. <laughs> I talked earlier about getting into, into acting. And the one thing our school did when I was about 14 was once a year, we'd have a sort of sketch night. It was sketch and music, and basically no one was doing any sketches or any comedy or acting. They were all doing music, so bands would come up. And and it was the one night of the year where our sister school, which was an all-girls school, would send the 14, 15-year-old girls along, and they'd be in the audience with the boys. (laughs) So, of course, in the flush of adolescence, every boy wanted to be in a band because that's cool. But no one quite told me this. And I thought the cool thing to do would be to do a comedy sketch where I basically dressed myself up as a nerd, sort of slicked down hair and everything, and did a stupid dance to Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy. (laughs) I got... I bet you pulled. Well, I got... I got a mate to kind of put together... I got it on CD... I said, I said to him, look, so when I come on and I look at the audience, just turn it on. And I'll just die. And I had a few props and stuff that were relevant to the song. And I remember just being backstage and all my other mates were like in these, they were rapping. <laughs> they were in like these guitar <laughs> sort of metal bands doing their five minutes. And it was going down a storm. I just thought, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> and, and it was too late. And I went on and... My friend Jason, who I'm, I'm still in touch with, press play on the thing. I said, Fred's I'm Too Sexy begins. And I just went for it. And it got the biggest cheer of the night. Uh, and I just came off stage shaking. And it was sort of, it was a kind of exercise in auto-humiliation. <laughs> because <laughs> it, was, it, it seemed funny to me. And it was only just before I kind of realized, oh, God, I'm, I kind of look like a real prat here. But I kind of went for it. And I went off stage and the, and the audience, it was, it was in the old uh, dining hall of this school. So it was an old, you know, kind of school dinner hall. I don't know mm. if you remember, but they'd often in the old school dinner halls, they'd have a big curtain that they kind of partition the kind of mm-hmm. room with. And they draw a curtain. And on one side was the kind of dressing room where all the acts were. And the other half was where the audience were. And I remember yeah. sort of taking off my gear and I was, uh, I was, just, I was, I was just putting my, trousers, my normal trousers back on. And through the crack of the curtain, this girl who was the prettiest girl I had ever seen from the school was looking through, staring at me. And I caught her eye and she smiled and gave me a big thumbs up. And we became, didn't become boyfriend and girlfriend, but became good friends. And I fancied her to death. But uh, in that moment, I made the connection between being silly 
and it having some currency with the opposite sex. <laughs> and, and that's not obvious to a 14-year-old necessarily. No. I think sort of while a lot of my mates were doing quite cool, like being in bands, I kind of went the other way and realized that actually those two avenues meet, <laughs> which is in parties and meeting girls and getting a girlfriend. And, and, and I just realized there was a sort of, another way to meet girls, which was uh, acting like a, a, a twat. Do you know, I think quite often people who end up in acting have had that experience at some point. It's that moment when you realise that actually not doing what everybody else is doing yeah. can work out to your benefit yeah. because at least you stand out. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it. And, and you don't quite know you're doing it because of that at the time. No, It's only afterwards that you realise that there's something there's something intrinsically sort of brave and slightly self-sabotaging about sort of going up and making a fool of yourself. Yes, anybody who stands up in front of, uh, you know, well, contemporaries at school and decides to do comedy, yeah. that is a brave thing to do because, you know, everybody at school is looking for an opportunity to, in a way, to get one over on somebody else, particularly a boys' school. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And that was a real sort of learning experience for me and it was, it was interesting because I took that onto university I was at Cambridge at a time where Rob Webb and David Mitchell were contemporaries and mm. Richard L. Waddy, John Oliver. Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman. Oh, my God. <laughs> I remember doing an audition for As You Like It with Olivia Coleman. We called her Collie back then. I think our friends still do, don't they? Right, right. And Collie didn't. <laughs> she didn't get the part. <laughs> <laughs> and to think that someone somewhere deemed Olivia Coleman, eh, you know, you're fine, but you're no Rosalind, you know. <laughs> oh God, the arrogance of youth. But it, but it was interesting, sort of meeting meeting a tribe at university. And it, I don't think it has to be it doesn't have to be Oxford or Cambridge, you know. And you find these people everywhere at every university who I think probably had a not dissimilar experience to me, where you suddenly realise kind of uh, comedy, particularly, was a, a kind of currency, not just with the opposite sex, but just with you know self-expression and finding your social voice, you know. Mm. So when that comes on at a party or something, do you still do the dance? I can remember portions (laughs) of it. Yeah, I can. And and it's, uh, yeah, incredibly, um, incredibly evocative to me and brilliantly about, uh, it was my birthday about a month ago. And a friend of mine who's American, now living in New Zealand, I've kept in very occasional contact with this guy, Lucas. Out of nowhere, I got an email from him with a video on it, and I clicked on it. And it was, right said Fred, the two bandmates who uh, are now doing things for Cameo. And I don't know if you know what Cameo is. Yes, I do, yeah. Celebrities do personal messages. (laughs) And he had got them to do a personal message to me, basically saying, we heard that you did this sketch when you were 13. Did you pay royalties for our song? (laughs) If not, we're suing. And it it was really lovely and really emotional for me and lucas had remembered this sketch that i'd done like god 30 years ago that is fantastic i know exactly what i was doing when you were doing that Go on. i was doing a tour of amadeus with tim pickett smith with a very young i think it was her first job out of drama school helen baxendale no and uh, we did a schools tour and i have a very strong image of helen before all the kids came in to see this show, us playing that as sort of warm-up music, her just strutting up and down the school hall. (laughs) So there's a connection. That's exactly Uh, it. As if she were a model. Oh, that's great. Because it was weird. It was sort of, it was quite a naughty song as well. It was one of those songs that was just, just had a little frisson about it and you suspected the two guys knew exactly what they were talking about. Yes. (laughs) And, (laughs) And yet it's at number one and it just rode a line that, to 14-year-old ears felt quite, um, yeah, quite quite edgy. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you a lot about my adolescence. But was... That showed all those boys in the rock bands. Yeah, man, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> all right, so right to Fred, I'm too sexy. It's on a loop. It's just playing. I know, I know. I know. Marvellous. Okay, yeah. that's four items. That means we only have one left, sadly. Oh, we can just break the rules and talk for hours. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not sad for me because this is another place, actually. And it's a, it's a place that I look back on. I think, God, I really grew up there. Uh, it was a formative moment for me. But I wouldn't want to go back there ever again. And it's actually a place where most people, 
would give their eye teeth to go to. And it's um it's Goa in India. Oh. Uh, and it's a, a specific beach in Goa called Anjuna Beach. Now, if you if you talk to most people, Anjuna Beach is it's paradise on earth. And Goa is back in the day, it was kind of where kind of dance music sort of was born. It was a hippie enclave. Mm. You could live like a king for about a pound a day. I did the kind of time-honored middle-class gap year when I was 17 years old. And I went to India for eight months with um with a bunch of guys. I went teaching and I taught in an orphanage for three months in northern India. And then we traveled for five months. And it's it's funny kind of looking back on it because um it's not the sort of thing kids do these days anymore. I think it was it's really dangerous, as my story will uh, attest. But uh, my parents, I think because they had such wanderlust, they grabbed that, you know, that tradition of that weird imperial tradition of sending your kids off to the kind of far corners of the earth, and, you know, come back a man, you know. Well, they'd sat through riots. Yeah, exactly. You know, India was a five-star experience as far as they were concerned, <laughs> you know. But I, I, I trooped off and went to India. This was 1993. I think it's fair to say, if you go back now, it's changed enormously. But India back then was still locked into something that was quite old-fashioned. It didn't have Coke. It didn't have McDonald's. It had Pepsi and it had Wimpy. Yeah. <laughs> that was the kind of fast food experience in India. It, it was still, it had shut out a lot of the West. So when you were there as a 17-year-old, your normal points of cultural contact were, you know, not there at all. We got really ill. When we when we got to India, we got we got a parasite called Giardia, which no one told us about. We lived with it for six months. You'd be walking down the street, and for no reason whatsoever, you'd just vomit. <laughs> oh, God. And, but we just kind of thought, oh well, I guess this is what happens, you know. And we all thought, four of us said, right, we got to get out of northern India because we were just ill. What we'll do is go to Goa because mm. it's beautiful. It's going to be great. We went in May. May is off season in Goa. It's when everyone goes to the hills because the monsoon comes. Um, <laughs> no one had told us. So we turned up just when all the other tourists had fucked off. And when the local Indian community are used to getting Goa back for themselves. And so we turned up expecting to be welcomed and given the warm welcome we, we had in, in every other part of India. That did not happen in Goa. And uh, the, the first problem was we had a 48-hour train journey down to Goa. I got very ill again. I got oh. dysentery. Oh, my God. A dodgy omelette sandwich in Mumbai Station. So <laughs> I, I turned up in Goa and I had to be hospitalized in a state hospital immediately. And all my mates, because we were so young, my mates just left me there. <laughs> I woke up two days later with, a, with an IV and I had lice bites. It's quite gory. Oh I had lice God. bites all over me because um, – the sheets hadn't been changed from the previous fella. And I, I took the IV out of my arm and I, I went up to the, the the secretary, the assistant, you know, in the hospital. I said, can I go? Am I well? And she went, you know, sure. <laughs> so I just walked out with some old Bermuda shorts and, you know, my gown. And as happens kind of when you're 17, I just had a moment of serendipity where there are a million beaches in Goa. And I just went to one. I w- went to the nearest one and I saw all my friends on the beach. Hey, Ruth, Ruth, what's happened to you? You're covered in bites. Yeah, you're right, beer. You know, (laughs) I've just gone through this private hell and they they, they didn't really know. But um, we were told very early on, look, if if you spend time smoking controlled substances on the beach, which we did because, you know, part of the reason we wanted to go to Goa, um, Mm -hmm. if you're going back late at night back to your hotel room, which was a tiny shack, uh, you'll often find police cordons, like police roadblocks. And this this Scottish traveller told us, um, don't stop because they're not police. They're local gangsters who rent the police outfits from the police and they'll just take all your money. Wow. And looking back, I think that's probably bullshit. But <laughs> nevertheless... The local police would just take all your money. Yeah, well, that's that true. You know, that, that happens. Lo and behold, well, it's 1am. We all pass out on the beach and wake up and think, ah, okay, we, we've got to get back to our hotel. And we were on our, our mopeds mm. uh, going down this road, and suddenly we see a police roadblock with these guys with staves. Not guns, staves, old school. And because we were still a bit mashed, <laughs> I was on the back <laughs> of my mate's moped, and he said, 
let's break through, let's burst, the, let's get through the roadblock. And so we <laughs> oh, no. sped up and we drove at like 40 miles an hour through this roadblock. The policemen, who I think probably were policemen, swung their staves. My mate came off his bike miraculously, <laughs> got back on and drove off. And we just got back to our, our shack and sort of just, we all just passed out. And in the morning, the guy who owned the hotel came to us and said, um, do you know about some foreigners who uh, just drove through a police roadblock last night? And we, we kind of went, no. <laughs> and the guy looked at us and said, you have 24 hours to get out of town. <laughs> and wow. it, was, it was like a spaghetti Western. And we went, okay. And we just packed up our bags and just made a run for it, for the train station and left Goa. So Goa for me was the, this really formative experience where uh, we sort of, you know, just encountered slightly life-threatening moments kind of two or three times as it turned out there. And it should have been the most delightful paradise on earth. And it turned out to be, yeah, this kind of diehard experience. <laughs> but I'd love to go back to India. But uh, but Goa? No, I'm, I'm going to leave that to the hippies, man. Yeah. <laughs> we, we couldn't hack it. <laughs> <laughs> it is very frightening, isn't it, when suddenly somewhere that seems friendly and jolly and lovely, if you find yourself in a situation that is threatening, yeah. and you yeah. come out of that sort of holiday feeling and think, oh. And it just turns. And um, because in the early 90s, there was no email. The phones, international calls didn't work a lot of the time. So you could contact your folks or even the British embassy and sort of say, listen, I think, you know, we may be in trouble here. <laughs> you were really just out on your own and just kind of living off the, the goodwill of other travellers, you know. Um, you didn't come across a bloke who eventually was called the Serpent, did you, while you were out there? <laughs> I didn't. No. Or maybe we did. <laughs> maybe you did. Maybe that's where this permanent yeah. illness. <laughs> exactly. Just throwing up all the time. Funny you should say that. Watching the serpent, I think for other people it was you know a terrifying story of a serial For me, it was like the pages of Lonely Planet. I was looking at that, going, <laughs> "God, I remember those hotels. I remember those guys. I remember those charming, mm. charming, mainly men who'd go, uh, you know, I have a hotel. Please come to the hotel. You look tired. Have a shower, mm -hmm. and then you you realize, ah, no, there's there's probably an ulterior motive here, and it's lots <laughs> of money, or maybe your backpack. Yeah, Th those." I think right up to the 90s, I think if you went to uh, the subcontinent, you'd have an amazing experience. But you had to have your wits about you because, you know, it's a place of a billion people and they would all like your Sony Walkman. And who can blame them? And who can blame them? You'd have to kind of grow up quickly. And so even, even though Goa for me is a bit of a nightmare, I still look back and sort of think, oh, man, I, I yeah, I learned to travel probably in those hairy five days. You know? The thing is, you're probably still checked into that hospital. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> They're still keeping the bed open. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, I think he's gone to the loo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rufus, well, what a fantastic bunch of things to put into the time capsule. It's been really brilliant listening to them. Thank you so much for doing this for me. Oh, bless you, man. Great pleasure. Oh, that was great fun, man. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Rufus Jones. I do enjoy having these conversations, as you can probably tell from the number of episodes we've recorded. Hopefully you also enjoyed listening and feel it would be worth your effort to subscribe to this podcast. Very little effort in reality. You just click on subscribe and you will be informed of every new episode that becomes available when it does. If you really, really enjoyed listening, then please do rate the show. You'll find it easiest just to click on five stars. And for the truly dedicated, there are podcast providers that allow you to review the show. A few kind words go a long way. Thanks. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook for information about what we're up to and you can listen to the theme tune anytime you fancy on Spotify. It was written by Past the Peas Music, so with a composer like that, it shouldn't be hard to find. OK, nearly finished this inane rambling. There's useful information in there somewhere, I promise. This was a cast-off production. Don't think it helps you to know that, but it's true. And the producer was John Fenton Stevens. Now, that is a name worth remembering. All the very best till next time, and have no fear there will be a next time, because unlike digital watches, our days aren't numbered. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.